Well, for pastors, there's kind of like certain unwritten rules and expectations, um, especially when it comes to like getting close to Christmas time, uh, where when it comes to the sermon, you know, you kind of come in expecting uh, to hear about wise men and shepherds and angels and stars and hear all the songs that were so beautifully put together this morning. Good job, Bruce, putting our worship set together and focusing on uh, the fact of the incarnation and Jesus coming and us getting to celebrate that at this time of year. Um, There's also a certain level of expectation among pastors where um, this time of year is when you typically have more people come that are kind of checking out Christianity or might not be fully bought in. So you tend to basically kind of focus on um, the basics, you know, on like the elementary things and like trying to help people understand just the kind of the surface level stuff. Well, today I'm going to do none of that. Um, So uh, as far as like surface level versus deep, like I hope you brought scuba gear today Um, because the passage we're in today goes pretty deep. Um, there's some things in here that are the harder things to understand in the Bible. Um, honestly, it's, it's probably one of the hardest topics there is. Um, but this is what I love about how, uh, we handle scripture here at Potter's house, um, is you take one passage and then we go to the next one. And so instead of me today, just saying, okay, what's a good Christmas passage for us to preach on? Um, we're taking the next passage that was up in the book of John. Uh, And this is one that is challenging. Um, It's challenging because it takes us uh, into the topic that probably among Christians, there's probably through history no more highly debated topic. Um, And that's the topic of how do we reconcile the sovereignty of God up against man's free will? Or another way of, of, of thinking of it is how do we reconcile a f- God who is in full control and who is known as love? That is who he is. He is love. He's in complete control. He is love. And yet there are people whom he created who will suffer his wrath and punishment for their sin. How do you reconcile that? And this is, this is a topic that probably among Christians throughout history, from the time Jesus walked the earth, there has probably not been any, more to, any other topic that more ink has been spilled on or more debates have been argued over. All right, I've heard many of these myself. Um, I've sat through many of them. I have personally argued on both sides of this argument, or if there is just two sides, I've probably argued on four or five different sides of this <laughs> argument. I don't know. Um, and so it's a, it's a challenging topic for us to take on. Um, and I know some of you guys are note takers. Uh, today would be a day to take notes because um, you might want to look back at some of this because my goal today is uh, to let Scripture speak on this topic. And so we're going to be hitting a lot of Scripture today, so you might want to jot some of these down. Um, also a great resource for you is the fact that we are online now, uh, so you can go back and, if this makes you really angry um, when you hear me talk about this, you can go back and listen to it again. Um, and, uh, and so we have that in multiple ways that you 
be offended. Um, we, we had the live stream uh, that you can go back and watch. Our Jacinth, everybody give Jacinth a hand. She does a lot behind the scenes here. Um, Jacinth each week, uh, she takes our, the audio of our sermon and she puts it on our website, which also goes to a podcast. So if you're one who listens to podcasts, you can get us that way and you can go back and listen to this and be offended all over again. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Brittany and I were meeting this week with another pastor here in town and his wife, and we were joking about uh, how we say things that offend people and then they get mad and all the different ways that works out with people in church. And I said, well, shoot, when I preach, I offend myself about every week because um, hopefully what we're doing is giving you the word of God. And when it comes to our own personal sensibilities, that can be offensive because it steps on our toes. And it might not be the way that we see things, but it's the way that God has revealed things. And so that's my goal today is to let Scripture speak on this topic, okay? Now, before we get to our passage in John 12, John foreshadows what we're about to see in John 12 back in John chapter 1. And, uh, and this, this is your Christmas for today, okay? All right, John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Okay, so John's already set the scene that, hey, Jesus, the Son of God, has come into the world. There's Christmas. That's when that happened, Um, the incarnation. That's what we're celebrating right now. Jesus came into the world, but he came, and the world did not know him. Even though he created the world, even though he created all of us. We missed out on him. And this is after 12 chapters of John covering Jesus' ministry and everything that he said and done. We come to John chapter 12, and this is where we find the situation. In John 12, the second half of verse 36. When Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. I love these parts of scripture where Jesus just gets away. He's like, okay, I've had enough. I got to get away. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So John knows the Old Testament prophets. He's saying, hey, I saw this being fulfilled right here. Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Um, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So here we see, towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, John, who's been with him pretty much every step of the way, and he's looking and saying, look, these people, they've seen him. They've seen him feed 5,000. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him bring Lazarus back from the dead. They've seen all of this. They've heard him teach. And yet their eyes are still blinded. 
They don't see the truth. They don't really see who he is. And this is exactly what Isaiah was saying was going to happen. Isaiah prophesied this. Isaiah said that God would blind their eyes and harden their hearts. Now that is the part that is so hard for us. That God would blind their eyes and harden their hearts. But what we see here in this is there's, there's these two groups. Okay, group one are those who did not believe and they were blinded and hardened from the truth. But then there at the end of the verse, there's that group two. Those who, he says they did believe scared to admit it. They were too worried about what everybody else thought instead of being worried about believing and giving glory to God for who he is. Now, we see here that John is quoting this guy named Isaiah from the Old Testament. Now, I don't know how many of you have been reading Isaiah lately, um, so I thought it might be helpful for us to go back and see these passages in their context that, that John is quoting here. So the first one comes from, from Isaiah 6, and uh, starting in uh, verse 8. Now, this is probably, in my life, the verse from Isaiah that I have heard the most, okay? Because it has been the key for so many, like, evangelistic missions passages that I've heard preached, okay? And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Have you guys ever heard that one? Yeah, ever heard the, the thrust to be the one say, here I am, send me. Let's join Isaiah. Let's be the ones to take the message of the Lord forward. Um, and we get rah, rah, yes, gospel, let's get it out there. Okay, um, so here's where Isaiah is. And, and he said, go and say to this people, here's the message Isaiah has given Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? He said, until cities lie waste and without inhabitant." Uh, I took on an extra verse there. That was bonus for you. <laughs> but that's not usually the message that I hear when we talk about Isaiah 6, 8. Whom shall I send who will go for us? And Isaiah's message was to take to these sinful people, you're doomed for destruction. Even though the message of God is being proclaimed to you, you're not going to listen to it. You're not going to hear. You're not going to change. But yet I am sent to proclaim a message of condemnation to you. Now that's hard. That's tough to hear. And then the other, other passage from Isaiah is Isaiah 53. Another well-known passage from Isaiah. But John references this, and I think it's very important that John references right at this point in covering Jesus' ministry. Because this goes into a lot of what's about to happen with Jesus. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, that's the part John quoted. Well, how does it go on? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And here in Isaiah, we have one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies specifically laying out exactly what Jesus was going to do and what he was going to go through. Though he was a sinless, perfect person who never did anything wrong, he was crushed. He was pierced for our transgressions, for our iniquities, for all the things that we do wrong. All that was laid on him. And the chastisement that was put on him that brought us peace. And that's, that's why Jesus is such a big deal is because he was the one who, who did that. And as John is referencing verse 1 of this, you have to know that he has in mind everything that follows. That, hey, as I reference verse 1, those who were really knew this Old Testament, that really knew Isaiah, as soon as I reference that, their minds would start repeating the rest of it. And they would say, oh, this is what's about to happen to Jesus. They esteemed him not. They didn't believe in him. They nailed him to a cross, and he died paying the punishment for our sin. And as Isaiah says here, this was all the will of the Lord. It was the Lord's will to crush his only son on the cross. Now, what we're about to go into next, we often we, we struggle with because we, we feel like, hey, this isn't fair. Is God fair in the way that when the things we're about to look at. But I want to challenge you with this. This point right here, this is what's not fair. It's not fair that Jesus had to die because we messed things up. That's not fair. That's, that's mercy. That's grace. That's God's gift to us. It's not deserved. It's not owed. We're not entitled to it. 
And so as we, as we go into talking about God hardening hearts and blinding eyes, let's just remember the only thing in this whole thing that really wasn't fair was what Jesus had to do for us because of who we are and what we've done. Okay? So now, now to the, to the really hard part. How do we make sense of God who is love being said to hardened hearts and blind eyes? Many who wrestle with this come to a conclusion um, that basically they justify it by saying something to the extent of, well, that person hardened their heart first. It was their choice first, and then, then if, if God did something, it was already after they made their choice. Okay, um, So the one that's well known for this would be like Pharaoh um, in the Old Testament with the plagues and all of that. Multiple times um, in, that, in Exodus, in that account, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then other times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay. And so many will reconcile this by saying, well, Pharaoh already made up his mind. He already set his heart in the way that it was going to go. And then God just kind of reinforced that. Okay. Um, one quote on this passage in John that uh, would kind of take this, this approach to it is this one from Leon Morris. It says, when John quotes, he hath blinded their eyes. He does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men chose evil. It was their deliberate choice, their own fault. Make no mistake about that. Okay? So, that's, that's kind of one approach. Um, as I said, in my life, I've had very different views on this at different times. And I do not think that in, when I held any of those different views, I was any more or any less saved. Okay? Um, this is not a salvation level issue. Understanding this is not a thing that affects uh, whether or not you're in right relationship with God. Um, it's one of those things that I think we bring him glory by intellectually wrestling with, okay? And thinking about how, who he is and how he works. But, um, so with that said, um, I don't fully agree with Mr. Morris here. Um, and uh, I think the best place to, the best argument I've seen on this um, actually comes from the Bible. Um, it's the one that convinced me to change my view. Uh, and so this is in Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul really lays out some clarity relating this issue. Now, as I said um, about, you know, unspoken rules for pastors, uh, Romans chapter 9 is probably one of the most neglected uh, chapters of the Bible, especially in Romans, because when we preachers come to it, we're scared of it and we run away, all right? Um, like, how many of you can remember a legit sermon on Romans chapter 9? Anybody? Okay, and I've seen some of you, Derek, you've had like 80 years, 90 years in church, right? And you don't have your hand up. So that, that tells you something if Derek can't remember a sermon on Romans chapter 9. And, and so with Romans 9, we... It, came up in my seminary class. We're, we're not there yet, Jacinth. Um, it came up in my seminary class where we're talking about this topic, and my professor took us there. Um, yeah, don't pay attention to the screen. We're all over the place right now, okay? Um, but uh, yeah, Romans chapter 9, my seminary professor was bringing it up to answer this question. 
And uh, my seminary professor was a, a younger guy in this class who he was, he had kind of gone straight through school, just finished his doctorate, was teaching. And, uh, and so we had him in our class. And then we also had several older seasoned pastors who had just never gone to seminary were in our class. Okay. Um, and so one of these seasoned pastors was very passionate about this topic and held a very different view from the professor. And so they got into a very heated exchange um, over this. And I was just sitting there, it's kind of like, who brought the popcorn, you know? Um, but uh, but they, were, they were really going at it kind of thing. And, and the, the seasoned pastor, his, his objection was, yeah, but I, I take Romans chapter 9 in context, okay? I don't, I don't just pull it out by itself. I take it in context. I'm like, okay, that's a fair point. So let's do that today. Let's take Romans chapter 9 in context. So what does it mean to take it in context? Let's look at the whole book of Romans um, and see what it is that Paul is saying here. Okay, so small tasks this morning. We just got to cover the book of Romans. Okay, all right, so let's jump into this. Um, well, Romans starts in chapter 1. Uh, I should have our young adults come in, uh, and just uh, teach this part. They've been studying Romans in, in their YAM, YAM group, so young adult ministry. Yep. You're to chapter five, so you're not to nine yet? Okay. Okay. Cool. All right. Yeah. Any other young adults that want to join them, they, they're having fun um, doing that. So, But Romans chapter one, and it starts verse 24 is where I'm going to start. Now, I can't read you the whole thing, okay? Go back and read the whole thing on your own. But I'm just going to hit highlights to get the argument that Paul's building through Romans. 124, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up um, to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty uh, for their error. And Paul is painting a picture here of the culture and the world. And he's saying, look, here's how corrupt it's gotten. Here's how messed up it's gotten from God's original design. He goes on, though, and he doesn't just leave it at that. He's not just picking on this one issue. He goes on in, in chapter 3. He builds this argument up. And in chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it says this. As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave and their tongues, uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. So Paul's building this argument. He's like, look, out of mankind, none of us measure up to God. This is how bad the world's gotten, but look, it's all because each and every one of us. There's none who's righteous. There's no one who measures up. And he goes on in verse 23, and he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the argument. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But there is hope, and that hope is found in Jesus. And the fact that Jesus is the justifier, he is the one that was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? He was put forward in our place. Jesus was put forward in our place to die on our behalf. And it is by that that we can have God's righteousness in our life by what Jesus did. Paul goes on um, from that point, uh, the next few chapters of Romans are really dealing with wrestling between the law and grace and sin and how do these three, three things interact with each other? How do these things come together? Is that, is that fair, Yams? Okay. All right. And then he comes to, in Romans chapter 8, a verse that we love. We love this verse. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We love that verse. All things work together for good. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what you're saying right now should be our response to this. But for some reason, Christians through time have gotten very upset over this. Uh, but you guys are saying, thank you, Lord. Because yes, as one who has been called, one who has been justified, all we can say is we're unworthy and thank you, Lord. But for some reason, Christians many times have wanted to debate this. But what he's saying here is, if we can just put in a little graphic here. God foreknew. He predestined. He called, he justified, he glorified. He did all of those things. Now you ask, well, when did he foreknow? My belief is that he foreknew at the moment he created everything. Because scripture tells us that those who are going to believe in him, those who call on him as their Lord and Savior, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. When did that happen? That happened at the foundation of the world. When he created everything, our names were written down. He knew us at that point. When he set everything into motion, when he created everything, at that point, he knew us. Now, it's at this point that some, like the Mormons, twist this and say, yeah, see, he knew us because we were preexistent beings um, who he already knew. And then we came and when we were born, we, that, that preexisting, be- no, that's not what he, Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying God is that powerful and he is that all-knowing and that beyond our comprehension that even at the foundation of the world, he knew us when we weren't even around yet. That's how big God is, that he foreknew. And so if he foreknew, then it can be said that he predestined, that he set it into motion, that we would be the ones, those of us who call on Jesus as our Lord and Savior, would be the ones who are saved. And then based on that, he calls us. Based on that calling of us, he justifies us. And based on being justified, then ultimately in the end, we get to be glorified in his presence with him. All right? So that's Romans 8. 
So I don't know how much more context I could give you for Romans 9, but here we go. Because the natural question coming out of that is, why does a loving God not foreknow, predestined, call, justify, and glorify everyone? Why not everyone? And this is a personal question. Because it's a question that maybe we're someone that we're wrestling with, whether, whether I've been called. Whether, whether this applies to me, whether God has chosen me to be one of his people. And we wrestle with that, and that's personal, and that's heavy. We wrestle with this because we have loved ones who we know um, aren't living like they have been called. They might, and, and that's hard. We want that for them. And so we wrestle on a personal level with, God, if you love them, why aren't you calling them? Why aren't you bringing them into the family? And that's where Paul writes Romans chapter 9. And down in verse 10, he says this. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see why pastors skip over Romans 9? Before these kids were even born, God said, I love one of them and I hate one of them. I've chosen one of them and not the other one. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, this is what takes us back to the point I was making a minute ago. We want at this point to say, God, that's not fair. But we have to remember the only fair thing would be for God to punish all of us. The fact that he doesn't is his mercy. The fact that any of us come to to salvation through Jesus is by his grace. And for us to question him on why Paul basically gives here the answer that Job got at the end of the book of Job. Job had all these questions about God, why would you let this happen to me? And the answer he gets in the end is God saying, who are you to question me, Job? Where were you when I created it all? Where were you when I set, it, set the foundations of the earth? Who are you, Job, to question me? And so, 
It's okay to ask these questions of God, but be ready for the answer. And sometimes the answer puts us in our place and tells us, no, you're not the one to ask this of me. You're not the one to question me. And then it goes on, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called. And so Paul's argument here is basically, who are we to question God? Who are we to question God? If this is the way that he works, if this is the way that it is, then who are we to question him? And now this does leave us in a place of saying, well, what about if, if I, I don't know the Lord yet? I haven't felt that call in my life. Where does that leave me? Does that leave me saying I'm in this group, that I'm in this group that he is not called, that maybe God's, I was just created for his wrath? And my answer to that is no. Let's look at Romans 10. Romans 10, 13 says, For there is, oh, that was verse 12. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And even if you go back to John, what we're seeing here in our verse, so all of that was just to explain what we're seeing here in John chapter 12. Um, so what we're seeing here in John chapter 12, this, this part that he quotes from Isaiah that is so troubling to us in, in verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts. John's saying, I'm seeing this right here happening in front of me. This is what I see happening as the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah and what he's saying. But if we notice the end of this verse, the end of this verse says that if they understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. The offer is there. And I want to tell you, if there is anything in you that is wanting to come to Jesus if there is anything in you that's wanting to call on him, as Romans 10, 13 says, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. If there is anything in you that is pulling you in that direction, that means that your eyes have not been blinded. Your heart has not been hardened. That means that that is God calling you and you need to answer. You need to call back and say, yes, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in what you did on the cross and I turn, turn and want to follow you with my life. See, we, we saw how God works, how he foreknew, he predestines, he called, justified, glorified. Those of us that experience that say, amen, thank you, Lord Jesus. But what happens on, the, on our side of things? Well, we were created. We sin. But then at the moment that he calls us, we call back out in faith and repentance to him and say, yes, I believe in you and I'm giving you my life. At that moment that he justifies us, then we are forgiven and we feel that forgiveness and we know that forgiveness to be real in our life. 
that we're made right with him. With his forgiveness comes his Holy Spirit, the gift that he gives us to drive us, empower us, and gift us in our life. And then with that, we're then empowered to live a new life, a new life in Christ. And that new life is how we're in the process of moving from where we were as filthy sinners to our ultimate destination of being in glory with him where we are glorified. That final thing that he does. And so from that point to that point, we're on a process of becoming more like him. Of putting to death sin in our life and living for Christ and living in light of the spirit. And that's what the rest of the book of Romans is laying out. Is how do you as a Christian live in light of that? I had a few more verses to go through, but we are out of time. Um, so we're, we're going to skip over those. But here we are. So my question for you is this. How, what is your takeaway here? Do you walk away from this saying, I understood none of that? Like I said, there are recordings. You can go back and listen to it in slow mode. All right, and pause, rewind, pause, rewind. What was that? What in the world is he talking about? Um, don't agree with that part. Fine. Because within the, the, the family of faith, this is one of those things that we can have very different views on. And we can still love each other and be brothers and sisters in Christ. All right? This is not something that we have to divide over, not something we have to fight over. But this is something that is glorifying to God for us to use the brains that he gave us to think about the way that he works, okay? So, my hope is that your takeaway from this, if you are a believer, is that you can look at it and say, wow, I am humbled, God, that you would do this for me. I'm humbled that from the creation of the world, you knew me. I am humbled from the creation of the world, you knew all of the sin that I was going to do. I'm humbled that you sent your one and only son to live and die on a cross for me. I'm humbled that out of that you called me and you called me to yourself. I'm humbled that you have justified me, that you have made all of my sin right with you. And I'm humbled that I will ultimately get to be glorified and be in your presence for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for what you have done. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for the way that you work through history. I thank you for the fact this is all laid out for us in Scripture. Lord, I pray that... Uh, my words today will be glorifying to you. If there's anything that I've said that it's an error, Lord, uh, please just strike it from our minds and, uh, and let us not remember that part. But God, I just pray that, uh, that you use all of this to build your church, to build us up and to help us to understand you better and to bring glory and honor to you. Lord, I pray that we will not be people like the second group of people that were listed in this passage, those who believed but were scared to admit it. Lord, I pray that we all will be people who strive for the glory that comes from you and not care what men might say. Lord, we love you. We set all this at your feet.